good morning. Um, it's good to be standing in front of you again. I don't know that I introduced myself earlier. I may or may not have, but my name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor at Element Church, and I want to welcome you to week two of our series in the book of James. We are starting, I guess technically we started last week. The only, we only made it through one verse, but um, we are starting a series, a study through the book or letter of James. Now, uh, last week I started with a question and I asked everyone to participate. Uh, I'm going to do it again this week. Now, last week was really easy. This one will be pretty easy too. Last week I just asked who in here had brothers or sisters. But here's my question for this week. How many of you would say over the last three years, at some point in the last three years, you have gone through a, a very serious personal trial? How many would say, I've been through something really difficult in the last three years? Now, I'm guessing most of us, just by the nature of what all of us went through over the last 18 months, could raise our hands. When I say trial, I don't mean in a court of law, though that would certainly count too. Um, but just, I know that a lot of us have been uh, or are going through some really difficult trials, circumstances, challenges in life. And that's actually what we're talking about today. Now we started the book of James last week and gave an introduction to the letter or the book of James. And we also gave a, an introduction to the author. James was a half-brother of Jesus. Now not everybody recognizes or realizes that Jesus had um, at least six half-brothers and sisters. When the angel appeared to Mary and said, surprise, surprise, um, you're going to give birth and are now pregnant with God's holy anointed one that he's been promising for thousands of years to send. Um, Mary was no doubt shocked, as was her current fiance was pretty shocked with it as well. But after uh, Mary gave birth to Jesus, um, her and Joseph went on to have a very normal marriage uh, that produced normally conceived children. And those kids were Jesus' half-brothers and sisters. Now what makes this letter even more interesting is that James did not believe in Jesus as the promised anointed one, as the Messiah or the Christ, as God's holy one while Jesus was still alive. James was impressed with what Jesus, his half-brother, could do, but was not convinced. He knew what Jesus was capable of. I mean, James had a front-row seat to things that you and I would dream of being able to see. James knows details about Jesus that none of us could fathom because we just don't have every detail recorded about the life of Jesus in the Bible. We have a lot of information, but not everything, and James was there to witness it all. James was impressed by Jesus, but he wasn't convinced. But then all of that changed the day he met his half-brother Jesus, resurrected from the grave. When he met Jesus, resurrected from the grave, it changed everything for James. And James went from being a skeptic to a fanatic. He was all in. 
He gave his whole life to not just physically following Jesus, which he had done in the past to go around and watch what Jesus had to do and hear what Jesus had to say, but then he gave his entire life and spiritually began to follow Jesus. James became the pastor of the very first church in Jerusalem, was one of the central leaders of the entire Christian movement for three decades, for its first three decades. James was the kind of guy that people like Peter and Paul would look to for leadership and wisdom and insight as they were trying to figure out how to spread the message of Jesus and start these new churches. James was all in. And as we'll discover as we read through the letter of James, James does not have a lot of patience for people who are only half in with their faith. James doesn't have a lot of patience for people who are lukewarm, one foot out, one foot in. Because for James, he experienced such a radical personal transformation when he met Jesus resurrected that he has a hard time understanding how anyone else who claims to know the resurrected Jesus could only be partially in, could only be halfway in, could have one foot in and one foot out. And so as we begin our journey going through the letter of James, his letter that he wrote in the early 40s of the first century to, Roman, uh, to Christians who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, just know we're all going to take a few gut punches along the way because James is just not going to be very delicate or soft around the edges. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into James and we're going to start in verse 2 because we started in verse 1 last week. We just did an introduction. And so we're going to start in verse 2 of chapter 1. Now you can follow along on the screen or you can follow along in the Bible app or if you brought your own Bible you can follow along there. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read all the verses that we're going to talk about today in one sitting. Like I'm going to read through them, it'll be 17 verses and then we'll go back and we're going to break it up into sections and kind of highlight a few pieces and allow it to speak to us this morning. And so verse 2 of James chapter 1 begins here. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and per every 
good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And so what I want to do is I want to take those 17 verses to break them up in a, a couple of chunks and then look at them and see the message that James is trying to convey to you and I this morning. And so we begin with this first section. And here's what I can tell you. This whole section is about steadfastness through trials, about remaining steadfast through trials. This is the ultimate point James is trying to make in this entire section that we just read. And what James wants us to understand is that ultimately, the goal for you and I as Christians, the goal for us is to be perfect and complete. That's the goal. The goal is to be like Christ, who is the ultimate example for us of what it looks like to be without sin or perfect and to be in total, complete, perfect communion with our Creator. That was the original design for you and I, for all of us. And sin has fractured that. But the goal for you and I is to be perfect and complete. And if that's the goal, then the pathway towards the goal is steadfastness. Steadfastness is the process through which, it's the pathway through which we pursue becoming who God created us and designed us to be. And what we see here is that James starts off saying, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Now what he means is the intensity of joy, not the exclusivity of joy. What James is not suggesting is that when we face trials in life, the only thing we should feel is joy, but rather that joy should be all-consuming, even in the face of other emotions and feelings and thoughts, that joy should override all of them, even in the face of trials. But this isn't about creating faith. This isn't about proving whether or not one already has faith. Here, James is talking about how trials purify the faith that we already have. Much like a muscle grows when it faces resistance, our faith grows when it faces the resistance within trials. And so we'll move to the next section, James 1, 5 through 8. Let's be honest. It sounds really good to talk about having joy in the face of trials, about counting all of our trials as joy, right? It sounds good, but practically incredibly difficult. How in the face of trials are we to be consumed full of joy? Well, the reality is that happens when we remember what trials are for. That trials are for purifying our faith. That if the goal is to be like Christ, to be perfect and complete, in perfect communion with our Creator, if steadfastness is the pathway there, that's how we can count it all joy. Because we know there's purpose in our trials. But that's one of those easier said than done moments. 
It's easy to say, oh, I'm going through a trial and this is the pathway leading me towards where God wants me. And so James recognizes that what we're really going to need is the wisdom of God. We're going to need God's wisdom to help us keep our perspective on what's really going on, to remind us that the goal is perfection and being complete in Christ, that steadfastness through trials is the pathway there. And here's what James wants to do. James wants to warn us about being double-minded and unstable in all our ways. This is the exact opposite of steadfastness, is it not? The exact opposite of being steadfast is being unstable in everything. And James says the danger that a lot of us will face in this is doubt. Now let's talk about what kind of doubt James means. James is not here referring to any doubt that we may face in life. James is not saying that that those who ever have any kind of doubt can never ask God for something and expect to get it. What we see is that what James really means is those who pray to God for wisdom or ask God for things, the people who should not expect God to answer those prayers are the people who are only half in, half out who are all in with their faith on one day, but the next day, they're all into something completely else. James is talking about a bigger, greater lifestyle. Because the reality is the fact that none of us have reached the goal. None of us have reached that place of completion and perfection. So it's inconceivable that we could be completely free of all doubt ever. What James wants us to know is that this isn't about a one-time moment of doubt or doubting one kind of idea or question about our faith, but for those who are completely unstable and are all over the map. And I can prove it to you. Now, we're not going to jump into them today because we're going to get there eventually, but in James chapter 2, which we'll hit in a few weeks, James introduces us to a guy named Abraham, and he sets Abraham up as the ultimate example of faith And what faith in action looks like. And if Abraham is our prime example of faith and faith in action that James sets up for us, we can see what James means by this doubting and this unstableness. And that he's not talking about just a one moment of doubt. Because Abraham himself, when he was first confronted by God and told, here's what I'm going to do with you and through you, Abraham doubted God. Abraham laughed at what God promised him because he was like, that's not even possible, God. Yet what we see in Abraham's life is that despite his doubt, he obeyed. Despite his his wrestling with what God was trying to do and what God was trying to say, despite it all, Abraham walked forward through faith. That he didn't let his doubt hold him back. And that over the course of his life, though there were some low moments with some doubtful ways, overall, Abraham remained faithful to who God had called him to be and what God had called him to do. And so if Abraham is set up as our ultimate example of faith, 
Even Abraham himself had doubts. Yet in faith, he obeyed anyways. Another great example is James chapter 4, which we'll get to eventually. And in James chapter 4, it's the one other place where James talks about being double-minded. And when he's talking about being double-minded in chapter 4, he's talking about people who one day want to live their lives and honor God and do and be who God says to be, but then the next day, they just want to be and do what the world says to be and do. That one day they want to honor God, but the next day they don't care and they want to honor what people in the world think and say. This is our picture of double-mindedness. Not just someone who has a moment of doubt, but someone who's not really all in. Someone who's only half in on their faith. Just like I told you earlier, James doesn't have a lot of patience for that kind of person. Because he says, if you've met the resurrected Jesus, it should change everything. You should be all in. And it's for people who, despite their doubts, will still in faith obey and follow. It's those kind of people who God will hear and answer their prayers. Let's keep going. Verses 9 through 11. Here, James is going to use the rich and the poor as a case study for the kind of trials we face in life. Now, James here is not taking a left turn and completely changing topics. Although, when you first look at it, it looks like he's not really talking about steadfastness through trials anymore. But we know that this is a sort of a, a case study, an example that he's giving us, because the very next verse, he completely returns to the exact same idea again. This also isn't just against the rich. Now, I'll say this. James has a very negative view on the corrupting nature of wealth. We're going to discover that as we read through the book. There's no doubt about it. But here, James is not just trying to get on rich people. What he's trying to do is show us that, hey, we can remain steadfast through trials, and here are some of the kind of trials we will face. For rich people, one of the trials you will face is not depending on God. You will allow your riches and your wealth to turn your eyes off of God. To stop thinking about him because you have such a high status on this earth. And James says, if you want to boast about something, boast about the fact that your wealth buys you no advantage before God. That God sees you just the same as he sees anyone and everyone else. Your wealth may buy you privilege and status and special opportunities here, but it won't buy it with God. And so your wealth or your riches can be a trial. It can be a trial that tempts you to pull your eyes off of God. And the same is true for the poor. It's the exact opposite. That when you don't have the things that you want or you need, sometimes our temptation is to quit thinking or focusing on God and instead focus on the pursuit of what we don't have. And so both wealth and lack of wealth can be a trial. And James would say to the, to the poor, don't focus on what you don't have, focus on what you do. That in Christ, 
you have such a high status. Because Christians have to learn to judge themselves not, not on a, a material uh, standard, but by a spiritual standard. And the material things of this world can serve as a trial to pull our attention and our eyes off God. We have two more sections. Verses 12 through 15. Look, we see it again here. This is the theme of these verses, of this whole section. Remaining steadfast under trials. Now, I don't want to say a whole lot about these verses, and here's why. If you've been with us for a while, I literally just taught on this passage like three or four weeks ago. At the end of August, we did a, um, a message in, in a series that we've been kind of running through the whole year on building margin in our lives. And at the end of August, we talked about building moral margin in our lives, and we looked at this very passage. And so I don't want to spend too much time on it today since we just recently covered it. But in the end... When we face trials, especially those of being tempted by sin, James says, don't start blaming God for it. Because God doesn't give temptation. God can't be tempted, so why would he be giving out temptation towards evil? No, 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 no. The temptations you're facing in the midst of your trials are coming from within. They're coming from your own sinful desires when we talked about these verses we talked about how the world says the danger zone is at the bottom of the cliff that's where death and destruction lie so the danger zone you should stay away from the bottom of the cliff you should stay away from death and danger and destruction that's what even our world says but the bible would say no no no, no. the danger zone isn't the bottom of the cliff the danger zone is at the top it's living your life on the edge of morality. Because when you live your life on the edge of the cliff, it only takes one misstep. It only takes one weak moment. It only takes one bad decision to lose everything that you love, to lose everything that you value. Death and destruction isn't just the danger zone. It's not just the bottom of the cliff that presents a problem. It's the top. It starts not just with sin. It starts with our own sinful desires. God doesn't give temptation. But there is something God does give. And this is what brings us to our final passage. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't give temptation to sin. God gives good gifts. And we know God's consistent. Because there's no shadow in God. God is the light. And wherever there is light, there can't be darkness. And so there's no shadow with God. There's no shifting shadow. He doesn't change. He doesn't give bad gifts. He gives good gifts. And ultimately, he gives us the gift of life. Our sinful desires give birth to sin. God gives birth or brings us through, brings us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth is our topic for next Sunday. 
We're going to talk about this word of truth, what it is, what it does, and how it works inside of us. But here's how I want to close this morning. You and I are called to be the first fruits of God's creation or creatures. Listen, one day Jesus will return to finish what he started. When he comes, he is going to make all things new, including this earth, all of creation, and you and I. We're going to receive what the Bible says are like resurrection bodies that are no longer marred by sin or corruptible. Heaven is not your eternal home. Heaven is not your eternal dwelling place. That's not what the Bible teaches. Our eternal dwelling place is on a recreated earth in the presence of God with Jesus as our king like we were originally designed to live and exist in the Garden of Eden. We are going to return back to God's original plan. We're, we're not going to spend eternity in heaven because eventually Jesus is coming back and is setting up his throne here on a new earth and a new creation. And we are called to be the first fruits of that new creation. It's like when a farmer or a gardener goes outside in the late spring, early summer, and they start to they, they see the very first little buds on their fruit plants. It's a sign of things to come. Those first fruits are a signal that something good is coming, that a plentiful harvest is on its way. You and I are called to be the first fruits of God's new creation, of his new kingdom. We are supposed to be those first fruits. The world is supposed to look at us and see that something new is coming, something great is coming, that something life-giving is on its way. How do we do that? How can you and I be the first fruits of God's new creation? How can you and I be the first fruits of God's new kingdom? Remaining steadfast through trials. That's how we show the world that something powerful is on its way. That something we've been waiting for is on its way. Something life-giving is on its way. That when the, in the midst and the face of trials, that we count it all joy. Because we know that steadfastness through trials is our pathway to being who God has called us, created us, and designed us to be. Trials aren't fun. But we recognize that they're a part of God's plan to take us to where he wants us to go. And when we count it all joy, when we remain steadfast, we get to be those first fruits of his new creation. A symbol to the rest of the world that something's coming. Let's pray. Lord, we... Um, Lord, honestly, none of us like trials. None of us enjoy going through difficult, trying seasons. 
but we recognize that steadfastness through trials is that pathway towards being who you who you've called us to be, who you want us to be. It's not easy to count count it all joy when we go through difficult seasons and trials. But it's our way of showing the world of being the first fruits of your new creation that something big is coming. When the world can see in us, despite our difficult circumstances, that we remain steadfast. That despite the challenges, our faith grows. That despite the pain and the difficulties, we're full of joy. Lord, we look to you and ask, would you give us wisdom to keep our eyes on you? Would you give us the courage and the strength to stay steadfast because the reality is we don't have that strength in and of ourselves we need you we need you to do it in us and we are so thankful lord that you give us the strength we need in those seasons and that's why in this moment we sing to you in the face of trials in the face of pain in the face of uncertainty in the face of even doubt we sing to you trust you. We follow you. Lord, be honored by the way in which we respond and worship to you now.